Thank you for listening to the sermon podcast from Grace Anglican Church of Grove City, Pennsylvania. Our goal in every sermon is to proclaim the bold truth of the Word of God, especially the undiluted grace of Jesus Christ. If you want to learn more about our church, check out our website at graceanglicanonline.com. I'm wondering how you feel about change. Some people find it to be exhilarating. I, I don't understand that perspective, but I know there are humans who, when they have to move to a new location, they like it, right? They like the adventure of seeking, out, uh, seeking after a new house and purchasing it and packing up everything and then unpacking half of it and putting the other bits in the basement forever. I mean, they like it. They like the change. For some people, they like changing relationships all the time, romantic relationships, you know. They bounce from person to person thinking they're going to discover some, some unfallen human, and, but they, they, they find it exhilarating. Uh, for some people, it has to do with a new job all the time. Some people find the, the newest tech very exciting. They love those changes. But um, for other people, those changes and, and more deeply emotional changes are very destabilizing and even harmful because all you want is a little bit of predictability, and life doesn't hand you that very frequently. Um, I, I find that certain changes in, in technology are destabilizing for people. Uh, my great-grandfather was a hero of mine. He died at 101 years old. He was, he was born before you know, a lot of people had phones. And then he first got, you know, got a phone in the 50s. It was a rotary phone. Do you know those where you put your finger in the dial and you spin it? And yeah, and he had one of those. And then, you know, came along touch-tone phones, and then satellite phones, and then cell phones, and then smartphones. And, he, and smartphones were out, like, the, the cheapest, or the, the most ridiculous and um, ineffective kinds were out right before he died. And somebody said to him, his name was Roy, and it was like, Roy, are you going to finally update? And he still had his rotary phone, you know. And he's like, and he said these words. He's like, I don't understand any of this stuff. I'd just rather die. <laughs> and he did, you know, right before. But he thought it was ridiculous. He said a person can only handle so much change in their lifetime. In a non-humorous mode, I have to ask you about your own personal changes and how destabilizing they've been. I mean, how's your marriage lately, right? I mean, what about your firstborn, and maybe they're not talking to you right now, and that's destabilizing. Maybe it's, you know, you had a brother or sister who's going through a divorce right now, and that's incredibly destabilizing, and it makes Christmas or Thanksgiving impossible, by the way. Uh, Or what about a death in the family? You know, somebody that was deeply impactful in your own personal life, and now they're not here anymore, and you can't talk to them, and there's no going back, and, uh, and it makes life so much dimmer without their presence, and those kind of changes can be uh, just ghastly and exhausting. Well, uh, Scripture is so beautifully honest, and it talks a lot about change and the difficulty of change, and I want to speak tonight about uh, change as well as stability, change and stability, because there are most things that alter themselves over time or get altered over time, and there are other things that thankfully stay the same. Uh, Regarding change, though, the context is important. Uh, Earlier in this narrative, 
Ahab, that uh, wicked princeling, and his wife Jezebel uh, met a bitter end. They're, they're now dead. Additionally, the twisted priests of Baal are now dead. The nation had a purging of sorts where all the people that were leading it into sort of a mild Satanism are now gone. And so there's a little bit of order restored and a little bit of hope kindled. But Elijah has this sense, and so do his school of prophets, that his time is done. I mean, he did his job, and his job is over. But Elisha doesn't seem to get the memo, uh, not, at least not emotionally. He doesn't understand, because every time Elijah needs a boundary, Elisha breaks it. Have you noticed that? Elijah in the story says, look, I'm, this is Bethel. It's really nice here. Um, you should stay, and I'm going to keep going. I'm going to go to Jericho. And that doesn't work. Uh, he doesn't listen. Elisha uh, seems kind of needy and a little clingy uh, because he thinks this kind of change of his master's departure is too much to bear. So he says three times the same speech in verse 2, verse 4, and verse 6. As the Lord lives and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. Meaning until God loses his immortal godness, and unless your lungs stop, you know, breathing air, I'm going to stay with you no matter what. And he will not be persuaded otherwise, even though not just Elijah tells him to back off, but the, the prophets of, of God that surround Elijah say, you know, he's going to go, bud. You better cope with it now. And, um, and in, in essence, he says, please, I know, shut up. Do you, do you know he says that? It's in the Hebrew, um, sort of. I know, I know, keep quiet, he says, but that's a nice way of saying, shut up. Like, I can't face this now. I can't face this. And there's, so there's an attachment that Elisha has with Elijah, and you hear the language of attachment. He calls him my father. He's not his father, not his biological father, but Elijah feels like his dad, you know? He because he was this mentor figure. He was, uh, he was the head of the order, you know, this kind of monastic prophetic order. And he's, there's all this loyalty and fealty toward Elijah, and he can't part with him. And then we not only hear about the attachment in the father language, we see the attachment because as soon as Elijah leaves, as soon as he is taken up and enveloped into heaven, uh, Elisha tears his own fabric. He tears his clothing because that was an ancient way of expressing distress. So he's deeply upset that his favorite human in the world is leaving him. Uh, and I think it's really easy to understand Elisha's resistance to this kind of change uh, because maybe somebody in your life has left you and you know what that did to you. And haven't you ever clutched onto somebody too closely? I don't just mean physically, I mean get emotionally kind of obsessed and be like hyper-involved and invested in somebody's life? You know what I mean? Well, that's what's happening here. He's really invested in this life, and all of a sudden now, that life is gone. But I think it's more, I think it's more than just um, he's worried about his loved one departing. I think he's probably worried about what happens to the country. I think he's worried about the whole nation. Why? Because Elijah was the face of God's power in Israel. I mean, he has like the power of Moses, right? Because you remember how in, in the um, Exodus narrative, Moses raises the staff and the waters part in the Red Sea, you remember? 
Well, now look what's happening in Elijah's ministry. He rolls up his clothes in, a, in, in kind of a staff-like way, and the waters of the Jordan part. And now you're losing the miracle man. You're losing the truth teller. You're losing the man that at least sparked a revival within our country. We're losing the man that created the school of prophets that now can speak truth to the nation. Right when things were going in a good direction, at long last, the hero is leaving us. So you understand his distress from both a personal as well as a professional angle. Um, and yet the big change occurs. In verse 11, as they still went on and talked, behold, chariots of fire and horses of fire separated the two of them, and Elijah went up by a whirlwind into heaven. And Elijah saw it, and he cried, My father, my father, the chariots of Israel and its horsemen, and he saw him no more. Obviously, this is a, an unusual departure because we know the typical departure. Hebrews 9 tells us what it is in case instinct didn't kick in. Hebrews 9 says, it is appointed for a man once to die and then the judgment, right? The heart attack comes, the lung cancer comes, old age comes to, to, to deal with us. But Elijah doesn't die. He doesn't die. In fact, his body and soul together are lifted, ascended via a transcendent tornado um, into the heavens. Body and soul enter paradise. This is really the precursor to only one other person in the Bible, namely Jesus. After his resurrection, he was usurped, enveloped body and soul into heaven. This is from Luke 24. When Jesus had led them out to the vicinity of Bethany, he lifted up his hands and blessed them. While he was blessing them, he left them and was taken up into heaven. And so in some ways, Elijah is a precursor to what's going to happen in Jesus uh, but what does Elijah's departure mean? Uh, I know Elisha is terribly worried about it, so it must have had a worrisome subcurrent or undercurrent to it for people. What does it mean? Well, maybe people were asking, has God left the building? If the man of God is gone, does that mean, by transitive property, that the God he represented has now backed off as well? and abandoned us? Are the miracles gone? The truth-telling, is it gone? Has the nation been forsaken? Are we doomed again to wander back into the darkness? So, lots of change, lots of change, and change creates all sorts of destabilizing questions within us, questions that are not, not always easily quelled. Well, that's the change bit. Now, enter some stability, because before Elijah departs, right before he departs, he begs a question from his Padawan, from his student, saying, what are you going to need, essentially? I'm going to go. What are you going to need? And to his credit, Elisha is pretty direct. He says he wants a, essentially a double portion of blessing, right? I want to inherit your spiritual muscle from God. I need a little bit of that authority from God. By the way, he's not being a narcissist. He's saying, if I'm going to survive, in essence, just like you did, I'm going to need God on my side because I don't stand a chance with these people unless God is with me. Well, then we know what happens. Elisha goes to the Jordan River and he prays a question out loud. This is the question he prays. Where is the Lord, the God of Elisha, Elijah? 
Where is the Lord, the God of Elijah? Man, there's a lot in that question. What is Elisha really asking? Is there any stability that transcends personality? Was this all about Elijah? Or is there something from him that I'm inheriting too? And we have the answer because he rolls up the cloak in a staff-like kind of position and the water parts, just like it did for Elijah. In other words, God was right there. God was right there. There is continuity, there is stability between the regimes, between what Elijah embodied and what Elisha embodies. And I think there's an important principle to deduce from this, namely, the Word of God transcends the man of God, the woman of God. The Word of God is weightier than the man of God or the woman of God. Um, The Word of God will never be muted even if a temporary spokesman or spokeswoman is taken away. The Word of God is never mute. Elijah stopped speaking, but now Elisha starts speaking. He'll be the one to speak words of truth, to confront kings, to do miracles, to address a generation. Um, I think the lesson is clear. The stable agent in the whole story of Elijah was never Elijah. Truth is not personality-driven. You know, truth stuffed into one beardy prophet is not our hope. Put another way, Elijah depended upon God. God did not depend upon Elijah. God is the steady undercurrent of all of history. Uh, And I think this is a marvelous and relieving and pastoral word for all of us. Because sometimes we may think too highly of ourselves that if we are taken away, so many things will fall apart. Um, And sometimes we wear that like a law. I am responsible for everything that happens to everybody in my life in some way. But the good news of the gospel is that that's not true because there's God. And we're not atheists. And God transcends your person. God will use your person, but also is much, much vaster than who you are. There's a wonderful uh, cross in the Canterbury, excuse me, in the Peterborough Cathedral in England, and it's right over the medieval altar, and it's red, almost too red, looks a little weird, with golden letters on it, and the golden letters say, the cross stands still while the rest of the world turns, meaning everything else is going to change, this fact never, ever does. By the way, that's why we have liturgy. In this service, right, we have all sorts of changing elements. I'm looking at hundreds of them right now. All of us change uh, day to day in terms of our mood, our interests, of course, our age, our self-understanding, and yet all of us, constant changers, are coming here to solidify our faith in something that is completely stable and unifying. That is, we're here to confess together central truths of life that are tethering uh, within a world that would rend us asunder. Um, The implicit message of a liturgy ought to be the truth is stabler than the individuals who confess it. That we're here to attach to something grander than the self. Stability, in other words, within a changing world. 
And I think this is good news, too, because it means that God's essence, God's energy, God's power, God's dynamism, God's honesty is not trapped in one era or just one church or just one leader. Do we really think God is that limited, uh, that, uh, that uh, non-dependent, that He is just fixated on like a few different contexts? I was talking to a guy the other day who said, look, um, you know, I, I, I wish I lived near you because there's only three churches in the United States that I would go to, and you're one of them. I'm like, dude, three? Three! He mentioned one in Idaho, one in Texas, and one in here, evidently. And I'm like, that says more about you than it does about almost anything. I mean, the narcissism in such a comment, meaning I have to have perfect agreement with all my already preconceived, completely right, flawless ideas before I would deign, deign to, you know, debase myself in some congregation. I mean, it's absolutely ridiculous. I mean, who are you? Who is he? Who are we? I mean, if God is that nitpicky, he's going to abandon all of us immediately. He is not dependent upon some perfect context or conduit. That was the whole point. It is the whole point of the gospel. There are many, many churches, even many in this town, that are wonderful, that proclaim the historic faith of Christ and Him crucified for you, and wish to see you developed in that kind of trust. The Word of God is not chained, and the Word of God is so stable, and the Word of God in Christ is here to, to give us a foundation whenever life gives way, and whenever we age, whenever we get dementia, whenever we get cancer, whenever the divorce happens, that we've got something to hold on to. Uh, and that's the stabilizing agent of life. Now, that was something about change, something about stability as it relates to this narrative. Now, let me speak a word for us here at Grace Church. Now, some of you are visiting, but you'll kind of pick up what I'm putting down. But for those of you who have been here a while, I want to address our situation uh, uh, with love and candor, and it's this. Our parish, in the last 17 years, has endured so much change, so much change. I was there in the early days when we were six people huddled away in a living room, and now we're, you know, bigger than that. Um, and yeah, uh, and I remember when we didn't have any money and our plans were, we, were like ineffective. Like, you know, it was just those early clumsy days of a church, and yet God has done lovely things here. And we've met in different places. We met in a Presbyterian church in Slippery Rock for a while. Then we met in an ice cream parlor, because that makes sense. And then, and then we met in another Presbyterian church, and now we're here, Lutherans. Um, that's how my parents always say Lutheran, Lutherans. We're here with the Lutherans, which is really great. Um, and lots of change. And more than that, within the last three years, here's some fun facts. Uh, our attendance has doubled, the budget has doubled, the staff has doubled, baptisms have doubled, and confirmations have doubled. In other words, so like there's stuff going on, lots of things. And we were averaging now about 470 when students are here, and that's a lot of change. And change creates all sorts of instability in a system. Questions, doubts, concerns, growing pains, all of it, and I totally get that and I feel it acutely every day, because I used to know everybody in this building, and I don't anymore, and that's hard for me. Uh, but in the midst of change, I think sometimes we can hunger after or latch onto, clutch two false attachments. Out of our need for security and stability, we can have two false attachments, and I want to mention what they are 
and then I'll give a, a gospel word to us. The first attachment that we cling on too closely, to which we cling on too closely, is nostalgia. Nostalgia. I like nostalgia just like everybody else. The memories of the good old days that we never really realized were the good old days when we were in them. It's more like gilded recollection. Right? But I think it's hard for people, uh, especially for people who have been at Grace for like 10 years, where they look around and like, I don't know most of these people. <laughs> and I don't know how to get to know them. Because things are so are, are larger now, it's more complicated. And others who are residents and have been residents for a, a while in the area say, you know, there's so many students now, it's hard to know who the residents are. But here's the thing that they don't tell you, and I'll challenge some of you who have that attitude in this way. Um, some of you are saying that as you look around about people that are not students, they're just like 28, but they look young to you because you're much older now, right? <laughs> like, it's just like mortality, right? Um, but what's, what's more complicated than that, though, is our college ministry and outreach has always been a part of us, a clear and valued part of our identity and ought to be. But our rapid growth is great and at times unsettling because I think we want to have a church that has its theme song from the show, Cheers. Some of you remember that, like eight of you who are over like 40. Cheers, right? Sometimes you want to go. Everybody knows your name. Dun, dun, dun. Okay, um, uh, but let let me let me offer a slightly prophetic, challenging word about that. Here it is. Sometimes we confuse nostalgia with Jesus. We think that Jesus is only living in the good old days, like on some past timeline. But here's the danger with that perspective, friends in some ways makes an idol of the good old days, which really weren't that awesome when we were in them. Secondly, um, it means that if our eyes are back there, we're not looking around right now at what God is actually doing in the present. We miss the manna for today because we're longing for the old manna, which we thought tasted better than this manna. Um, God is in the right now. The great I am is here now. So that's something about nostalgia that we can cling to too closely. The other thing is something that Elisha experienced, that is hyper-attachment to certain spiritual leaders. We, like Elisha, can get very attached to particular ministers. Some of this is okay. It's perhaps because the minister you love has helped you in some way. But I can say this about myself and the staff who would agree uh, to this very easily and willingly. Um, we are not your answer. We're, we're just not. You, you may like me. I hope you do. You may like the staff. You certainly do. Um, <laughs> I mean, they're, they're great. You may like us, and if you like us, please um, beware the, temp the temptation to over-identify your favorite minister with your own you know, stabilizing, unchanging faith, because we're not all that. No matter what press you read, all of us, certainly me, we struggle and we panic and we get tired and we lose our nerve and sometimes we get really sad. Uh, we are not your ultimate hope. We're not stable enough to be. Our job is to point you to the one who is your hope. That's our task. Now, I just said if you like us, but if you don't like us, let's say you don't like me, or you're really anti-Shepson, or you're totally like Chad, 
that Chad Lawrence, he did me wrong in 1984, or David Beck, who wasn't alive in 1984. <laughs> um, maybe you're really anti-David Beck. There's a growing trend in that direction. If you don't like us, here's the thing. Like, eventually, somebody else will have our jobs, and it'll be awesome. It really will be. God will be there, too. God will be here, too. He doesn't need us, you know? Like, we're replaceable. You'll get better ministers in the future. It'll be fine. But I think those two things we clutch on to because we want stability, nostalgia and hyper-attachment to certain leaders that we think are conduits or portals of the heavens. But here's, here's the good news that I'm ending with. Here's the good news. Whether Grace Anglican is five people in a living room or 500, um, whether you know everyone in the room or whether you don't, let me remind you of who we are. What is our stabilizing identity that come hell or high water will not change? Three things. One, we are a gospel church. We are a gospel church. We believe that the focus of the church and the Christian life is not the Christian, but the Christ, the Christ who is on your side, who has done everything possible to bring complete and wild redemption into your life, as you are and not as you should be. That we are not, in fact, redeemed or saved or loved through our own personal growth or our willful commitment to Jesus. All of those things are outgrowths of something deeper, which is the one-way love of heaven for you in your crisis and with your problems. We're a gospel church. We're also, number two, a healing church. We believe that a gospel encounter that is close contact with 200-proof grace can make people healthier in their internal lives. It can cure our self-righteousness, our self-indulgence, and our ridiculously covert cover-ups. Grace helps us over time to be unafraid and more fully repentant and free, because what are we to hide or be ashamed of? It's all been dealt with and dealt with squarely and definitively. And lastly, we're ascending church. We're a gospel church, a healing church, and ascending church, meaning we are a place for both students and residents to be helped by the gospel and then sent everywhere, all over the nation, but also the world. We have an opportunity in this place that is not afforded to too many other congregations that I'm aware of, that is to equip and send out people who are here transiently so that they um, live out gospel-motivated lives wherever they are giving other people a clearer picture of Christ and Him crucified, and a gospel that is not constantly diminished with all sorts of asterisks and nuances, but one that is bold and 100% grace to the sinner. Friends, our sending mission is central to our calling in this place for students as well as residents. It's an absolute necessity. It is who we are, and it is what we do. My point, everyone is welcome here at this church. The unchanging and absolving Christ makes room for everybody. And if there's room enough for you, there's room enough for somebody else too. Your place is here. Your place is the church. Change, yes, is unsettling, but it doesn't alter the granite-like stability of the gospel. So whatever changes come for this church or in your own personal life, whether those changes are life-giving or unsettling, you will always have a stabilizer. And that stabilizer is known to us as Jesus Christ, who according to the Scriptures is the same, the same, yesterday and today and forever. Free at last, Amen. they took your life, they could not take your breath.